The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. If you haven't listened to our previous episode with super survivor Kathy Spencer, where she speaks about successful recovery, I highly recommend you give yourself some time to listen to that. Kathy shared with us her journey of recovery and she reminds us that recovery never ends. She shares strategies that work to improve hand function. She talks all about harnessing the power of the mind for optimal recovery and she explains to us the importance of self-advocacy and gives us some great examples of what that looks like. Carl Shepard are two um, Aussie physical therapists. They were the first to dovetail modern motor learning with rehab. Okay. It's sort of a sea change from the neurofacilitation crowd. Janet Carr, one of them, passed away in 2014. But they wrote this great book. I think it's called Stroke Rehabilitation. I think that's what it's called. I, I wrote a review on Amazon. You can read it. It's just glowing because I just I adore this book. But they make a very, very clear. There's four situations in which you're most likely to fall. And this is especially for people with brain injury, but also for anybody. Starting to walk. So right when you start the acceleration of walking, when you stop walking, you know, can you come to a full stop and not lose your balance? Turning, a whole bunch of problems with turning because you know you have to shift your gaze constantly, you have to shift your feet constantly, and then uneven surfaces. So when you're out walking, and you're thinking, wow, I don't want to be afraid of walking. I want to get out and I want to see things and I want to see people I want to do my life. Think about those four situations. When you start walking, when you stop walking, when you're turning, and then any sort of uneven surfaces, be really hyper-focused on, on those four situations. Ready? I'm ready. You ready? I think so. Hi, Deb Battistella. How are you? Hi, Pete Levine. 
I am ready. I'm excited to talk about falls. Oh, excited to talk about falls. I think I shouldn't be excited to talk about falls. Well, maybe you should, though. I mean, Do you think we're, I should? We're going to try to help people here not fall. Help people not fall, yeah. I mean, you can't say that you help something not happen because it never happened. But still, imagine if we kept a few people from falling just through the stuff we say today. That'd be pretty worthwhile. It'd be very worthwhile. I think we can do it. Worth being excited about. Yep, absolutely. So let's get excited about this. I thought that maybe the way we could start this talk about falls and how not to fall is, you know how sometimes you and I go down a rabbit hole and we have a hard time digging our way out? I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> See, that's funny. That's very funny. I like it. I thought I was I was offering you an olive branch and you just threw it right at my face. Um, no, that's that's perfect. You know what's down rabbit holes? Little baby rabbits often. And there's cute. A, whatever. Um, no, but I thought I would go directly down the rabbit hole just so we can get that oh, out. Great. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. And since you have a degree in anthropology, <laughs> which I can't get over, and I'm gonna keep picking that scab. Um I wanted to talk about why it is that we walk upright in the first place, right? Because if you're a dog and you fall, first of all, you're not going to have much chance of falling because you have four-wheel drive. You're a quadruped. And, um, and then if you do fall, you're so close to the ground, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, of course, they get hurt, but, uh, but yeah. Depends on the size of the dog. That's true. You could have a great Dane and it could be a mile down there. <laughs> Um, but if I fall and I hit my head, I'm like 5'10", 5'11", something like that. My head is going to fall, really fall a long way until I get to the ground and it's really going to crack my, my noggin and my neurons right open. So I wanted to talk about why we walk bipedally. And my understanding is, and I'm not an expert here, about 2 million years ago, our deep ancestors started to walk bipedally. And there was a bunch of different, this is, we were in somewhere in, in the middle of Africa, like Central Africa. I used to think it was East Africa, apparently it's Central Africa. And there were, the theories were, well, we could carry tools. Of course, we didn't start making tools until about 70,000 years ago. So that kind of makes sense. One of them was that the, the high grass of the Kalahari or whatever, we could see over it. So maybe that was some benefit. There was another idea that there was quite a bit of heat and there was you know, weather changes that made it very hot. And if you gave us less surface area by standing up rather than being on all fours, the sun would hit us. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff. But then there's this new one, and I love it. And it says that the reason that we may have walked bipedally is that we can carry food. So if Ooh. you think that, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, if you're a yeah. monkey and you're a quadruped, you can't, you've got to eat where you're sitting because you can't really carry food that far. But if you're a, a bipedal human, you can walk really long distance and carry food back to the tribe, back to the young ones. You know how lazy they are. They don't want to go anywhere. You're hunting, you're gathering, and you're able to carry this stuff back. So it gave us this great advantage. So I want to go further down this little rabbit hole. So you know that my second favorite podcast is the Brain Science Podcast. And back in 2008, the great Ginger Campbell interviewed this guy by the name of Gary Lynch, who is a neuroscientist from UC Irvine. And he was talking about how when we went from quadrupeds to bipedal, the upper extremities got relatively small because they weren't weight-bearing anymore. This would happen through evolution over a long period of time. But the lower extremities got really 
big and beefy. And, you know, uh, the upper extremity kind of had this great range of motion through the shoulder and we developed these opposable thumbs and all this other stuff. And that was great. Of course, the problem with the shoulder is that it's technically a ball and socket joint. If you think about like the femur, the way it fits into the pelvis, there's a big acetabulum. It really is a ball really in a socket, whereas the shoulder is really a ball against a, a flat surface. It's called the glenoid fascia. And what holds it in there are the, is the rotator cuff muscles, the sits muscles, supraspinatus, infraspinatus, uh, teres minor, and subscapularis. One of the few things I remember from back in school. Okay. Well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. So anyway, so you have this great arm movement and you, you can allow your hand to get to different places and do work with different tools. Meanwhile, the legs got bigger and bigger. And when the legs got bigger, the hips got bigger, the pelvis got bigger. And when the pelvis got bigger, the birth canal got bigger. And when the birth canal got bigger, you could have infants with bigger heads and bigger heads meant bigger brains. And so we can thank bipedalism for us being able to, well, not me, but you giving birth to very large brained human beings. How about that? So it was all about walking. It's really interesting. I think you meant to say crazy. <laughs> what has Peter done? He's gone down the rabbit hole. Well, I am asking the question, why do we really need to know this? Because it's about falls. And if we were quadrupeds, we wouldn't fall that much. And then if we fell, unless we were Great Danes or a giraffe, we wouldn't fall from great heights. Maybe we should go back. Anyway, know. all this may be edited out. But I just wanted to get that out because I've been thinking about that way, way. Okay, great. Late, yes. Late. So um, anything that you want to lead off with with falls that actually has to do with falls? You crazy <laughs> kid, you. Ooh, can I talk about these two articles that are my favorite? Absolutely. So I have these two articles here. I have one from 2015, risk factors related to falling and stroke patients, a cross-sectional study. And I have one from, I think this one's 2000, yeah, 2018, risk factors for falls in community stroke survivors. And this is a systematic review and a meta-analysis. And there's a ton of information in here that's in both of these articles that are important for survivors, important for rehab professionals. And it seems like there are a lot of opportunities for us to maybe do a little bit better and how we help people once they leave rehab, live in the community for a while, especially people who have some pretty significant deficits. So are you saying that rehab could do a better job? Um. Actually, let's talk about this a little bit, and then I'll tell you a story about my friend. Where, and it, I don't think it's necessarily rehab. I think it's uh, one of those TBI waiver programs. Uh, what do we call these things? Like a case management company that could do a lot better. Okay. So the articles talk about certain risk factors. So why don't I just state what those are? So people who have balance and mobility problems, people who need help with their self-care, people who take sedative or psychotropic medications, and those who have cognitive impairments, experience depression, and have a history of falling are more likely to fall. Interesting. And you and I chatted before about the kinds of medications um, that 
would most likely lead to falls. And you mentioned sedatives, and that could be a whole class of drugs and psychotropic things, which help you psychologically, but there's, they often disturb sleep. Then there's probably sleep meds, which mm-hmm. go into sedatives. But you also mentioned, and this is true, there's a direct correlation between the number of meds that you take and your chance of falling. And there is this, it's called the paper bag test. And you take all of your meds, you put them in a paper bag and you bring them to your MD and you say, why am I taking these? And why is the dosage what it is? And sometimes there's old meds in there that they just kind of continue to let you have, but maybe they're not so appropriate anymore. So remember meds will have a dramatic effect on your chance of having a fall. Yeah, I love you always come up with these great simple tests, paper bag tests. And a lot of people, I want to talk about this a little bit, because a lot of people have multiple physicians that they see, and each one doesn't necessarily know medications that another is prescribing. And so I know here where I live, there are some pharmacies that will come out to your house, they will go right through all of your medications, they'll take the outdated ones, they will um, help you understand what they're all for, and then be able to help you know if there's any anything that you shouldn't be taking because they're interactions with another medication. So pharmacists have a lot of knowledge about medications, and they can help people if they can't get to the doctor right away. Absolutely. What else about that study? I have it in front of me. Um, it was a meta-analysis. It was in stroke survivors. Mm-hmm. And Community dwelling. That means they're, that they're not institutionalized in any way. They're not in skilled mm-hmm. nursing because that's a whole different, different thing. They're not even in assistive living. They're living on their own. Yeah. So yeah. the first thing that stood out to me was they said that understanding the risk factors for falls in community stroke survivors is crucial to developing an effective community fall prevention program. Makes sense. It does, doesn't it? Well, all this stuff seems very obvious once you start thinking about it. So the risk factors and Mm -hmm. all the things that can trip you up literally. Yeah. So in this, they, they looked at all fallers and recurrent fallers, and then they looked at stroke survivors and people who did not have a stroke. The strongest risks were the impaired balance and mobility and using the sedative or psychotropic medications, followed by the disability and self-care. People who are at moderate risk for falling are those who have depression and cognitive impairment and history of fall, which I found that to be very interesting because... I think as an OT, I tend to think cognitive impairment, oh boy, that's it puts them at the top of the line for falling. Right. And I just found that interesting that it's moderate risk. Hmm. Yeah. One of the things that happens in Alzheimer's is eventually the amyloid beta and, and all these other cascade of chemicals attacks the occipital lobe where, as you remember, is where vision is. Mm-hmm. And I was discussing this with my daughter today. Uh, who works as a tech in a rehab facility. And um, she was saying, you know, they're in the parallel bars and they're so scared of falling. And it's like, you're in the parallel bars. Nothing's good. You got two people around you. You got a gate belt on you. Everything's fine. And I tried to explain to her, and I think I was successful. Well, we'll see um, that they often hallucinate. They'll see birds or they'll see animals. This is why if you ever go to a skilled nursing facility and you have a, um, whatchamacallit, like a lockdown unit for people with Alzheimer's because they tend to wander and they tend to wander away from the facility. 
it's coded. You have a code to get out. And so anyway, you make sure that the floor is monochromatic. It's one color and it doesn't have like a black square every eighth square because they think that that's a hole. Mm-hmm. And you don't make it really shiny because they think that's water or ice. And so all of these sort of fearful behaviors they have about walking really come from the fact that they see stuff that you're not seeing. And then they're probably wondering why you're not seeing it. But I would agree with you. I'm surprised mm-hmm. that cognitive impairment in that way isn't more higher on that list of potential uh, things that would cause a fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing too, like hallucinations are one thing and then misperceptions also occur with people who have dementia and as well as stroke survivors. That can happen too. And um, well, it can either make people afraid to go somewhere or just cause them to misstep. Yeah. And that's the other thing is it's it's not just the falls. It's the fear of falling. You're going to fall. I can't go out and see my grandkids because what if I fall? Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this before. It's not just the fall and all the injuries. And I want to talk about all the things that can happen when you fall because I want to scare the living bejesus out of people about falls. But it's this embarrassment. You hit the ground, man. People will surround you and they'll say, are you okay? And it's very embarrassing to fall. So um, yeah, the fear of falling is like a big deal. You know, Pete, I get that because a couple of years ago, I slipped on ice and fell and all those people that I really wanted to be around were not anywhere to be seen. (laughs) (laughs) And I (laughs) I had to deal with that myself. I was like, where is the, I was in my neighborhood. I took a walk before I went to work. It was one of those sunny, cold days and I didn't see the ice. And there was this lady that always walked her dog and she didn't walk her dog. And I really needed help because I knew I broke my wrist. Oh. <laughs> Did they like, call I it a collie's <laughs> fracture? It was right when you went to brace yourself. It went, mm-hmm. yeah. thanks. I'm sorry. Yeah, thanks. So, um, <laughs> wait, I was going to go dog walking lady. Oh, where, she was nowhere to be seen. What the heck? And that whole thing of being afraid, like when the next fall came around. It started to get cold out. I was out in public. I was like, oh, I was a little timid. Like I understand where people become afraid. Like I was able to overcome my fear of falling, but it's scary after you've broken something. Yeah, it yeah. really is. But it even is. if you haven't broken something, if you know, like walking, imagine walking on, on ice skates. That's no. what it feels like, like. Oh no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Since this article does mention stroke survivors, can I talk a little bit about stroke survivors and and their problems? Yeah. Stroke is, uh, you got a strong side, you got a weak side. Guess which side they usually fall to. Mm. Don't overthink it. The weak side? It's the weak side. That's right. (laughs) Because they just don't have the strength. And guess which limb upper extremity cannot stabilize them from that fall? Um, the, the weak, weak one? side. Wow, the weak side. I'm That's doing, right. They can't I'm winning that. today. Right, you're good at this, I'm and so good. they can't even put their arm out to protect themselves from the fall. No. Guess which side is more osteoporotic when they do DEXA <gasps> scans of people? What do you think it is? Um, I'm gonna go with the weak side. Bing, 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 bing. Thank you. Hey, yes, yes, lots of money you won on that one. So oh, let's review. God. They can't stabilize themselves. They fall towards the affected side and it's more osteoporotic. Mm-hmm. So what often hits first, your body bends 
And the first thing to hit is called the greater trochanter. It's a part of the femur, which is the biggest bone in the body, but it really sticks out on the side. And when that breaks, boy, that's a big problem. First of all, there's two options. One is you can get a hip replacement and the other is called an ORIF, open reduction internal fixation, where they put a bunch of screws in there and it's like the whole thing. And then, you know, when you do those kinds of surgeries, it's not like it's benign. They put you back together and it's like in the NFL and they restructure the knee and then the guy is better than ever. You can develop all kinds of problems like pressure sores when you're in Mm -hmm. the hospital, lung infections, urinary tract infections, surgical complications, of course, other orthopedic problems. You end up with gait deviations like a limp. That's even more than just the stroke. You can have a thrombus or an embolus that then creates another stroke. It's kind of a blood clot. So it's like, it's this whole thing that, you know, once you have the fall, it becomes a cascade of other things that ends up happening to you that are really bad. So this is why we need to get in front of this and not have people fall in the first place. Yes. It can also break other bones and other parts of the body. Um, it can also halt progress towards recovery. So if you're a stroke survivor and you're doing really good at recovery and all of a sudden you fall down, that fall will halt your recovery. And as we've discussed during the subacute phase in brain injury, that's the, you know, the first few months is the really important. It's not the only important time as mm-hmm. we learned from Kathy Spencer last episode but it's a really important time. So if you were a fall during that, that would set you back some. Yeah, it would. And I, I know that you know sometimes falls occur. Sometimes they occur in the hospital. And as, as much as we try to prevent those from happening, they still sometimes happen. And it, it shakes up an entire team. And I know family members, family members tend to get very upset when things like that happen. And it can shake you at like, I've had a patient fall on me and not on me, but in my care. And it shook me up for a while. You know, that's what happens when you care about people. Yeah. Um, I had that happen too when I was a student. That's and I darn near failed my clinical because of it. Ooh. Yeah, this guy, we were just, you know, doing the whole toss the balloon around thing. And I had him, but he went down to pick up a balloon off the floor. I was like, wait, wait, wait. And he just sat on the floor. And just even that kind of stuff will turn everybody into a tizzy and there's all kinds of paperwork Mm -hmm. and all kinds of problems. And you can fail your clinical if you do that kind of stuff. I didn't, but uh, yeah, it can be a problem. Well, I'm really glad you didn't fail your clinical because you've gone on to do such great work. Uh, Well, it's a work in progress. Keep going. Well, this work that you're progressing with is lovely. Um, You you know, the thing that we need to understand is that people do what they want to do sometimes. Like you can try to stop them, but you can't always stop them. And sometimes people have, I don't necessarily know if it's an impulsivity thing or a, a very strong desire to prove to you that they can do something. And it can happen faster than you can rationalize with them and get them to maybe not do that, like bend over to the floor and pick something up. So you were very complimentary to me and I appreciate it. And you also got me off the hook for dropping the old man. Thanks for a lot. You just said it wasn't my fault. I told him not to, but he did it anyway. Anyway, let me go through some other things that can happen. So it can kill you. That happens all the time. People die Mm -hmm. from the fall itself somehow. You can break any number of uh, wide variety of bones. Mm -hmm. You can forever end your ability to walk and you end up in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. It can forever make walking painful. And this is not just for stroke survivors, this is for everybody. Yeah. 
and it can lead to all kinds of muscle reduction and, and time in bed and the whole thing. And uh, yeah, so I had an, one interesting stat that I wanted to tell you that has okay. always blown my mind. And this has nothing to do with brain injury necessarily, but if you're over 65 and you have a fall that lands you in the hospital for at least one night, you have a 50% chance of dying in the next year. And for stroke survivors, uh, 70% of people that have had a stroke have a fall within the first year after their stroke. So this is serious business. It is serious business. The thing that I don't see here in your book is um, an, uh, another potential brain injury from hitting the head related to a fall. Yeah. So you're going to have to help me edit the next edition because <laughs> you always come up with the best stuff. Yeah. And, and in fact, that's another thing I wanted to talk about. One of the things that's important is what do you do when you see someone fall? If you've ever had this happen in a in a facility or out and about, um, it's it's pretty shocking, and you got to get out of your car and you got to help the person. And one of the first things I always say, and we just had this fall things in this PTA program that we were talk that we were talking about this issue. The first thing you should say is, "Did you hit your head?" If they're conscious and they're able to talk to you, and then you check the head: is there bleeding and are they breathing? And don't really move them. Don't move them because why? why? Why shouldn't we move them? Well, we don't really know. We don't know. We don't want to cause further injury. That's right. Mm-hmm. And like if their their hip in, is in some weird position, you decide, well, I'm just going to straighten out his leg. You can cause a spiral fracture and a whole bunch of other things. If their neck is involved, you can oh. cause a spinal cord injury. Right. So, you know, at some point, you're talking to them. You're calling 911 if you need to do that. If they're not responsive, if they lose consciousness, you should call 911. Mm-hmm. Ask them if they hit their head. Um, try to figure out where it hurts on them. See if there's any obvious bleeding or bruising. Is there a neck injury? Don't move them if you uh, suspect that or a hip injury or any kind of injury where you're moving stuff around. Phone the ambulance. Let them deal with, with all those problems. So Yeah. Some and stay with the person and reassure them. That was another thing that a lot of times when people fall, the first responders, the first people there will panic and go, oh my God, it's a fall. Mm -hmm. No, you got to be measured with your tone. Are you okay? What hurts? How can I help you? Yeah. If they're conscious and you think it's safe, you can bring them to a chair, have them kneel towards the chair and use the chair to sit up and just make sure their butt ends up in the chair and they don't fall again getting it. Yeah. This is a, a good conversation to have. And the thing that I'm thinking about right now is we've talked about a lot of really bad things that can happen when people fall, but we don't want people to develop this extreme fear of falling because then that makes everything worse and a greater risk of falling. So maybe we should talk about how to not be afraid. So what kind of, are you thinking about interventions that might help somebody to... I don't know if I'm really thinking about interventions. I think that a lot of fear, fear lives inside of us somewhere. So what do we do if, if I, I've worked with people who have been so debilitated because they're afraid, they fell and they're afraid to move and they never went home. So you can't take the fear away from somebody, but what if we as health professionals and people who understand some of the intrinsic parts of falling, how do we talk to people or talk about this in a way that is realistic, but yet not to instill extreme fear? 
because family members get afraid. Some therapists are afraid to get people out of their wheelchairs, even in therapy, because they don't really know how to help people move. So what what do we, I don't want to just leave people. Well, I listen to noggins and neurons and I'm not getting out of my chair again. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not what we mean. So, yeah. You know, one of the things that you you immediately find out is that there's a lot of things that you can do to mitigate the chance that you would have a fall in the first place. And one of the things, my wife is a physical therapist. You should go on these home evaluations. I'm sure you've done these as well. And you go in and look, what shoes are you wearing? You know, why is that carpet there? And it slides all over the place. You can't even get your walker between the table and and the couch, how are you supposed to get to where you need to go? How about the lighting? The lighting's like either glaring and really too bright or it's not adequate and you don't have any lighting in the bathroom at night. How do you even know where you are? And so you go through the whole entire house and you try to figure out ways to make it a lot safer. I read something today and I don't know if it was in your book or in one of these articles mm. that I read about I think it was in an article about home safety assessments are important and what you're talking about is very important. I mean, I've been in homes where people have cords that they're walking over. It's not good. But the other piece is going beyond that to having a good home exercise program or a good solid program that addresses balance or whatever the problem is that's putting this person at risk for falls. And and I think you had sent me an article that talks about balance assessments. Were there any that you wanted to mention? Well, I took a couple notes. There's the falls efficacy scale, which is a person's perception of how well they they move, which I think is important. And I know sometimes people think they move better than they do. And sometimes people think they move worse than they do. But most of the time, people have a realistic idea about how well they move. And then the Berg was mentioned in there. And isn't that one that we talked about in one of our other episodes, did we talk about that? We did, yeah. We talked yeah. about you can take the Berg and take one or two elements out of it that are interesting to you and just score those one or two elements. But the yeah. Berg balance is a, is a standard test for this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then there was the, was there the 10 meter walk test, I think? You know, the faster you walk, the less chance you have of falls. So yes, that would mm-hmm. correlate pretty well. Okay. I got the five times sit to stand test. All these are done by therapists, the timed up and go. Mm-hmm. That's where you, mm. you get up out of your chair. They, they say, ready, set, go. You get up out of your chair. You go around, I think it's three meters. And then you go back and you sit in your chair. How long does that take? That correlates well with falls. Yeah. But there's a lot of them. I think what's important is that you do test this stuff from time to time. Mm-hmm. There are some other things that you can do. Look for more lighting generally. Clear all the items out of the way. Don't use throw rugs. Make sure you use decent shoes. Don't walk around barefooted and your toes curl or whatever. But don't make them slippers either. Make them good, solid shoes. Make sure there's handrails around. Put handrails, like sturdy, professionally put handrails in the bathroom. The bathroom is full of sharp, very things that will crack you open in a variety of ways. It's the most dangerous room in your entire house to have a fall in. Yeah. And it's wet. I mean, people shower in there and the floor gets wet and it's very easy to slip and fall. So have professionally installed grab bars. That's important. Have your vision checked. There are hip pads that you can wear. They're pretty discreet and you put them so that greater trochanter portion doesn't crack if you hit the floor. 
Now, I remember a student of mine that I had years ago found some research that showed that people who wear those hip pads have decreased fall risk. Why do you think why do you think that is? I have an idea, but what's your idea? Well, I have an idea. My thought about that is that it brings awareness to the hips and anytime you have better body awareness, you're going to move better. That's Yeah. Is that your thought? Uh, yeah, kind of like that like the hip pads themselves remind me that I'm a fall risk and it's this kind mm-hmm. of constant reminder, but it's very they're very discreet. They're very thin. Mhm. Yeah. And I wonder, too, if they help people feel a little bit more confident that there's some padding there. Yeah. So this gets back to your original point, which is none of this does us any good if you're afraid to go out of your house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Make sure the grab bars are professionally installed, by the way. And don't try to grab the towel rack because that thing isn't going to work. The towel rack doesn't work. Those suction cup grab bars. No, they're not intended for people who need weight bearing assistance. The other thing that you can do is apparently there's this chemical burn that you can put into tile that will make them more rough and give you better grip. And also when you're in the bathroom, you know, tell your spouse or your caregiver or family members, look, I'm going to leave the bathroom door unlocked in case things go south. Probably bedroom, it's good as well. And please knock before you come in. But um, if you hear me yelping or something, come on in. You're yeah. feet free. A lot of falls happen when people have an emergency needing to use the restroom. And so I sometimes recommend that as soon as you feel like you have to go, start heading on in there. Don't wait until it's an emergency. And I know this is also problematic too for people who take medications that are diuretics. So a lot of times they they won't want to take the diuretics because they have to get up and use the bathroom frequently. But, um, you know... It's a good way to get some exercise. Just don't wait until it's too late. Hey, sister, I'm a middle-aged man. You don't have to convince me of that. I got to pee yeah. every 47 seconds. So, <laughs> <laughs> Too much information? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, everybody goes to the bathroom. That's right. And you're supposed to drink water. So not, and I yeah. love coffee. So I love yeah, water. exactly. Yeah. yeah. I read an article today that was really interesting about young people in falls. So it turns out, that when they did this huge study of young people and look, and they said, um, how many times have you fallen in, in the last six weeks? And how many times have you fallen in the last 24 hours? And they kept asking it like daily. It was done online. These were 19 and 20-year-olds. Really? They responded to a daily email over 16 weeks and asked if they had slipped, tripped, or fallen in the past 24 hours. And they were not uncommon in young adults. 48% fell at least once. fell more than once, and 10% reported an injury. Now, a lot of these were sports-related. I'll give you that. But let's just make this very clear. Anybody can fall, Mm -hmm. and it can be devastating. And you know all the things that happens if you end up in the hospital, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, we don't want that. We really don't want that. So So something else that I think is important to talk about, if cognition is a risk factor for falling, then we need to use an appropriate cognitive assessment. And the MOCA was listed in one of the articles as being more sensitive than a mini mental, mini mental okay, exam. So the, the MOCA is the Montreal Occupational... It's the Montreal oh. Cognitive Assessment. Oh, cognitive. Okay. Yeah. And now yeah. they're starting, they're going to start charging a fee. Like you have to be trained to use it and they're going to be charging a fee for that one. Um, the LOTCA 
The Lowenstein Occupational Therapy Cognitive Assessment was used in one of the articles. And so I want to talk about the length of time. So the MOCA is real simple to administer. It's, it's a short, more of a screening version, but it does pull out mild cognitive impairment, whereas the LOTCA has many different subtests and it takes longer to administer. But I wonder, like, I know that the rehab world is changing right now. Um, I know that it's challenging and people are at a time crunch. But it, to me, it makes sense to put the time into doing an appropriate assessment so that you can look at these different sub areas and know exactly where a problem is so that your treatment intervention can address that problem, whether it's to remediate it or come up with a compensatory strategy for it. So I, I think that therapists struggle with cognitive interventions. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that therapists face in the clinic. It's been my experience. That's what I've seen over the years. And the other thing, there was something else I wanted to say, but I forgot. That's why we edit. <laughs> I have no idea what I was. Yeah. So well, let me just riff off of that a little bit. Yeah. So imagine if you're a caregiver and you're concerned that your mom is going to fall. Like what kind of question? Ask the caregiver or the mom? The the mom. So, uh, or or how could you as a caregiver do something that's kind of like the mini mental, but give you a sense of whether they're falling? I don't know. Was that kind of where you were going? With no, but it was, I wanted to speak to the caregivers because I don't, I think we all have an understanding that there's a caregiver burden, but I don't know that enough people address the caregiver. So it's really important to me because I've worked in critical care units for years and I cannot even tell you the number of people that I've worked with in the ICU who ended up with sepsis because they weren't taking care of themselves because they were taking care of a loved one. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It blew my mind. I just, yeah. So anything that we can do as clinicians to help address a deficit can help the caregiver. On the other hand, it, there's this receptivity issue or concern that's not all caregivers are receptive to what you're telling them. Not all, not all survivors are receptive either. So there's a, a dance. It's like a dance that we do with people. So I do functional capacity evaluations. This is for people that are trying to get medic be on Medicare or Medicaid, and um, and so there's a lawyer involved, et cetera. And so I have to test whether or not they're ready to go back to work. And one of the questions that I always ask, even though it's not on the test per se, but you can ask anybody, how many falls have you had in the last six months? And you'd be shocked by the answers that people will give you. They go, oh, yeah, I felt yesterday and I felt, you know, and you look at them and they're, it seems like their balance is okay, but it turns out that they have heart problems or whatever and they get uh, orthostatic hypotension. When they stand up, they get dizzy and there's all kinds of things that, so always ask that question. You could ask them as a caregiver, ask your parents, have you had any falls lately? Have you ever had to catch yourself? Um, and then if they did fall, uh, did they get hurt? And that's probably a pretty important thing to know as well. And sometimes when you directly ask the question, people don't want to tell you the truth. So one of the things that I look for, and I just look to see how people move. And if they're furniture walkers holding onto the furniture, then I start like, I'll just start chit chatting. But it's, it's different from the therapist to client perspective than it is family member caregiver to client perspective, because they don't know me and they, they think I'm interested in them, which I am. But sometimes I just 
want to know when's the last time you fell and people will just tell you that that, like you just learn that they fall all the time and they think it's natural and normal to fall. I don't want to forget to talk about the TBI waiver situation that I mentioned in the beginning of this conversation. So what is that exactly? Well, here it's a Medicaid it's a Medicaid program for people to have like an overarching company or organization take care of coordinating their cares. It's for people who live at home following stroke or TBI. And I when I was a COTA I worked for an agency had I had two clients. One, they were completely opposite each other. One was scared to death and the other one would just, you'd find him out on the busy road in his wheelchair, couldn't figure out why people were stopping when he fell out of his chair. He was great. So my friend that I told you about who passed away last year, she lived at home alone and she had care coordination services through an agency. And based on everything that we're hearing in this information from these studies that we're talking about today, the falls risk and all of that dependent for ADLs is a big one or needing assistance for ADLs, maybe not necessarily fully dependent, but needing assistance, puts somebody at risk for falls. This agency tried to cut back her services at one point, just without even doing any type of an OT or a PT evaluation, said that she was moving better. She used a wheelchair. She, she could transfer, but she used a wheelchair for mobility. She was heavy and they told her that she was moving better. So I think if you work in a community agency, it's appropriate to use appropriate research literature to make these decisions like this if you're going to change a person's level of services that you're providing. So my friend ended up getting legal help and um, had to fight for continued services that she was already getting. So remind re- remind me again, why were they cutting services? What was their justification for that? And they decided that? she was moving better. And so they d- she didn't need services anymore. Well, she didn't need as much. And I, you know, it's easy for me to be on the outside looking in and saying, My first go-to is, oh, this is a Medicaid program. They're trying to cut back spending. They probably didn't have enough workers because she frequently had AIDS calling off. It just does not make sense to me that a person who needs help, who is at a higher risk for falls because they need help, should, without any formal evaluation, have services reduced. Yeah, that's true. It reminds me a little bit about last episode when Kathy Spencer was talking about it about how you have to be a huge advocate for yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy for people who are already expending additional energy beyond what healthy people expend in a day. Yeah. Yeah. So. They're trying to recover or they're trying to get on with their life. And now they got to fight the insurance company or whatever these, these organizations that you're talking about. Yeah. So therapists, I think this is just important. Well, I think it's important for survivors to know self-advocacy is important. When I think it's important for therapists to remember this, all of this knowledge that we have and the the skill and understanding that we have and to pull in the, the data from the research and writing justifications or the appeals letter. Yeah. Yeah. That would, that would be something that'd be good to do. It's hard to do. It is hard Hard to to do back and saying, look, this is what I need, but, Mm -hmm. And it's such a labor, you know, and it's it's tough when you when you're alone. Sometimes a caregiver can be helpful or kids can be helpful. One of the stats that always stayed with me, and this has nothing, this is a rabbit hole stat, but um, and I may have mentioned it before. So it turns out that 
if you've had a stroke or a brain injury, the more daughters that you have, the less likely you are to be institutionalized. Nor correlation with sons. No, daughters. Oh. I only got one. I think I only I got one too. You do? Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe daughters-in-law. Maybe we can count daughters-in-law. Maybe. We have to be able to count. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's wow. like the old That's Sarah Silverman joke. I'm sorry. It's a boy. Yeah. So, hey, do you know who Carr and Shepard are? Does that ring a bell at all? Maybe no, not so much. I so don't. they're physical therapists. So you're off the hook. Oh, are they the ones that you told me about before that have the YouTube channel? No. 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 Who's that? Somebody has a YouTube know. channel. They're named Carr Shepard. So Carr and Shepard are two um, Aussie physical therapists. They were the first to dovetail modern motor learning with rehab. Okay. It's sort of a sea change from the neurofacilitation crowd. And uh, Janet Carr, one of them, um, passed away in 2014. But they wrote this great book. I think it's called Stroke Rehabilitation. I think that's what it's called. I, I wrote a review on Amazon. You can read it. It's just glowing because I just love, I adore this book. Um, but they make a very, very clear thing. There's four situations in which you're most likely to fall. And this is especially for people with brain injury, but also for anybody. Starting to walk. So right when you start the acceleration of walking, when you stop walking, you know, can you come to a full stop and not lose your balance? Turning, a whole bunch of problems with turning because, you know, you have to shift your gaze constantly, you have to shift your feet constantly, and then uneven surfaces. So when you're out walking and you're thinking, wow, I don't want to be afraid of walking. I want to get out and I want to see things and I want to see people. I want to do my life. Think about those four situations. <laughs> When you start walking, when you stop walking, when you're turning, and then any sort of uneven surfaces, be really hyper-focused on, on those four situations. So is, is extreme mindfulness of that what we want or just a, like a, just a level of mindfulness? Do we want the overthinking? No, you don't. Because I bet just like in life in general, that's just going to get in your way and trip you up, mm -hmm. no pun intended. Um, yeah. On the mm -hmm. other hand, on the other hand, if you're somebody who is, has a propensity to fall, you have to plan things out. Yeah. Some of these you can pre-plan way in advance, grab bars, lights, all the things that we talked about. But some of it is, look, when I get out of bed at three in the morning to go to the bathroom, I darn well better stand up, but this can be pre-planned too, mm -hmm. stand up, get my bearings, get a light. You know, Hopefully I have a light on the floor so I can see if there's anything in the way. When you have balance problems, a slipper can trip you up. A small, like, I don't even know what, like nothing, next to nothing. A little carpet can just send you sprawling, yeah. especially at night when you're disoriented, the lights aren't on and you're half dream, half awake, and you're trying to get to the bathroom because you're into your dreams came this idea that you had to go to the bathroom. You ever have dreams like that? I have them all the time. Half my dreams, I swear, I'm trying to find a bathroom in a mall. But I think that's because mostly I'm close to being awake. I'm an idiot, aren't I? No. I'm like an aged, middle-aged, older man with uh, bowel and bladder problems. But yeah, so when you stand up, make sure that you, know, you have your uh, wits about you. So your original question was, look, should I obsess about this or is it? I think it's okay to be on the cautious side, but just not stop, it from, stop you from walking. Because if it does, your walking is going to start to plummet and you're going to fall more. And yeah. then you end up in a wheelchair and nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants so that. can I say one of my, this is a common OT trick 
for people who like if you if people get up to go to the bathroom frequently at night and mobility is challenging all of the things that you're talking about having a commode at the foot of the bed is a simple trick you know never put it at the head of the bed nobody wants that at the head of the bed but um just put that at the foot of the bed so that you can just get up do what you have to do get back in bed and take care of that in the morning i'm looking forward to that deb thanks i'm not (laughs) (laughs) what about um other things in the bathroom that can keep you from falling uh, with regard to toileting a built-up seat is that is that what that's for is that to keep you from falling or well I mean, if you have some balance issues, a commode with handles on either side can help keep you upright. But a lot of times people have trouble just transitioning from sitting to standing. So that extra height is just the boost that some people need to be able to get from sitting to standing. Um, God, there was something else that you said. It keep Things keep leaving my mind. You aren't writing notes constantly the way I am. Every time you say something, I'm writing it down furiously. Oh, I did write it down. <laughs> Right you forgot you wrote the note. <laughs> so you need a note to remind you that you had a note. Thanks. Yeah. So the other thing, I know sometimes people are very realistic and they know that they may fall or they have fallen. And how do you feel about learning how to get up from a fall? I know sometimes therapists teach people how to get up from a fall. Well, of course, you need leg strength to get up without aid of a chair or something to lean on. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times... And again, in our PTA program, just went over this. So I have another great um, professor to sort of school me on this, but you get to a chair or something that you can lean on that's stable. A chair is really the best option. And you get up on one knee, you push yourself up with your arms. And yeah, I think those sorts of strategies can be really helpful because if you are on the ground and you're uninjured, then it's probably a good idea to know how to get up. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, if you fall and you can't get up, that's the real problem. And uh, that's where, yeah, I fall so and I can't get up. You know. Yes. Let's talk about that because those life alert buttons are worth wearing. You can wear one around your neck. You can wear one on your wrist or carrying a cell phone in your pocket. Now, there's the next step to that of actually using it. So I've worked with people who were too embarrassed to make the phone call, to press the button. Yeah, this this is stuff that really happens in life and they've they will lay on a floor. So you know, it makes me wonder like is it is it true embarrassment? Like because we've talked about being embarrassed. It's embarrassing to fall. Um or is there a level of cognitive challenge where they don't realize that it's important to get up or did they whack their head and you know lie unconscious so that does happen to people too but um, having the button or the phone and actually using it is really important yeah good good uh, reason to have the cell phone on you at all times I guess you could mm-hmm. argue um, have you ever heard of these stories and I'm sure you have that the person fell and they found them two days later and yeah. they just couldn't move and they were stuck in their apartment. They couldn't get to it. Yeah. I was actually mm-hmm. thinking about that person. The nicest man I ever worked with fell backwards into his bathtub, laid in his bathtub for a couple of days. And then he was so afraid of falling that he just really did not make progress. He was such a sweetheart, but it really, it's hard on people. Yeah. Yeah. And then they get the rhabdomyolysis and muscle wasting. and For every day that you're in the hospital, it, it takes you two days to recover that cardiovascular and muscular strain. 
And that's irrespective of the fall itself. So it's yeah. a big problem. Yeah. One of the things that um, we did recently is we had clinical tests for, for some students. And I was testing this one girl. He's, they're very nervous, these students. But, yeah. you know, the scenario was that uh, she had somebody on oxygen and, she, and this person was a frequent faller. She was the kind of person that you were talking about that always used the furniture to get around and forgot her walker and was very and was sure that she could walk great, but was impulsive. And one of the things that we did was we threw a whole bunch of stuff on the floor and saw if the student would react to that. And one of them was an animal, but it was supposed to be a real animal. But we told them it was a real animal, but it was actually a stuffed animal because we were at a school. Okay. So, you know, I had to ding this student on the fact that, you know, as they're walking past the animal, she's kicking the animal out of the way, which is exactly the wrong message for somebody who has an animal. You know, you want to get them caged or some other way, because especially small animals, it seems like even large animals can knock you over. Um, but yeah. If you're a caregiver or if you're a therapist or a therapist student, you don't want to fail your test, get into that room and make sure the path is clear that you're going to ambulate through before you start. Because otherwise, you know, you're going to fail the test or you're going to lose your mom. <laughs> One or the other. I don't <laughs> yeah. know which is a big failure. Actually, I do know which is the bigger failure. So be careful and look around their house and make sure that they have a, a path to get through. Yeah. Oh, this is, we could keep going probably for another hour, but it's already been an hour. Yeah, well, as usual, I had a ball, so. I did too. <laughs> we should get back to our families, to our lives. We should. We should. I'm hungry. I'm going to carry my food with my two hands. You too. You're bipedal. Look at you. <laughs> yeah. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Thanks, folks. Okay. And tune in next, next week or when we do our next podcast. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.